0: In our passage today, we have Jeroboam establishing a false worship in the kingdom of Israel. The nation had been divided geographically, it had been divided politically, and today we're going to see that it's divided religiously. But why did that religious division come about? Why did Jeroboam establish a false religion in Israel? The answer to that question is very informative and instructive for us concerning the nature of false worship. For to understand this passage is a means to guarding ourselves from easily falling into false worship. We begin with some background. It must be remembered that Jeroboam had been made king over Israel by God. We saw that in 1 Kings chapter 11. God had said to Jeroboam through God's prophet, 1 Kings 11:37, and I will take you and you shall reign over all that your soul desires and you shall be king over Israel. So Jeroboam has been established as king over the 10 northern tribes by God. Furthermore, Jeroboam had been given a wonderful encouragement by God. Jeroboam's kingdom would remain strong if he simply were faithful in following God's commands. In 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 38, and it says, And if you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my father did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David." and I will give Israel to you. So that is God's word of encouragement to Jeroboam to remain faithful to God. However, Jeroboam did not trust in God. Jeroboam believed that, in fact, worshiping God would be the downfall to his kingdom as opposed to being its security. Jeroboam was afraid that he would lose the kingdom if the people worshipped God. He thought that if the people would follow after God, then Jeroboam would not only lose the kingdom, but his life as well. So now, as the passage opens, we are given insight into the thought process of Jeroboam, how his mind worked, how he reasoned through the situation. 1 Kings 12, 26. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem. Then the heart of the people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam king of Judah. What is interesting in this particular section in verse 26 is that we are given the inner thoughts of Jeroboam. His heart is revealed to us. These words were not said publicly. These words were not announced to the nation of Israel. This was a thought process going on in the innermost recesses of Jeroboam's heart. We know that what Jeroboam is thinking because God reveals it to us. Israel did not know, but we know. And we know it, of course, because God tells us. And it's a reminder of a very important truth. And that is that God knows our hearts. He knows our thoughts. The scripture says, even afar off, even before they come into our mind, even before we think them, he knows what we're going to think. Jeroboam's heart was not hidden from God, but it was hidden from Israel. The people do not know what's motivating Jeroboam. It's not hard to see what is motivating Jeroboam, and we'll talk about that m- much more as the message goes on, but in the, f- in the very beginning, we need to ask ourselves a question, and that is, Why was Israel so receptive to the false worship that Jeroboam established? We can understand what's going on in the heart and mind of Jeroboam, but what's going on in the heart and mind of the Israelites? Why are they so ready to embrace this false religion and forsake the religion and the worship of the true and living God? What was it that was appealing about this false worship? What was it that was enticing? Why did they enter into this false worship and abandon the true worship of God? That's what I want to focus on this morning. And so we're going to look at seven characteristics of false worship. Seven characteristics of false worship, of helping us to understand what motivated them, why they entered into this false worship so as to guard our own hearts. So our theme is seven characteristics of false worship. First, the first characteristic of false worship is that it is based upon leaders who desire to create followers of themselves rather than followers of God. The first characteristic of false worship is that it's based upon a leadership that seeks to make followers of themselves rather than followers of God. Jeroboam is concerned that if the people worship in Jerusalem where they're supposed to worship, that they will no longer be his followers. He will lose his kingdom. It's important to understand what Jeroboam's concern is not. Jeroboam is not concerned with truth. Jeroboam is not concerned with the objectivity of, is there a God? Jeroboam knows that there is a God, and he... Knows who this God is, for God had revealed himself to Jeroboam. This is not about issues of truth. This is about sure power usurpation. He wants allegiance. He wants people to follow him. And if they follow God, then they won't follow him in his reasoning. Or notice it says in verse 27, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord. Now the word Lord there is not referring to the Lord God, but it's referring to Rehoboam as their master. But in the thinking of Jeroboam, if the people return to God, well, then they're going to return to Jeroboam, and if they return to Jeroboam, then I'm going to lose the kingdom, and not only am I going to lose the kingdom, but I'm going to lose my life.
1: For it says in the end of verse 27, And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Leaders who are seeking to make
0: followers of themselves rather than followers of God are going to bring about a false worship. Leaders who are interested in making followers of themselves rather than followers of God will bring about a false worship. And we see this as a general truth that's repeated time and time again in the scriptures. There are many different passages I could go to 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 demonstrate this same point. But let me point out two things to you. First of all, the Pharisees' primary motivation was to seek followers after themselves. Jesus said of them in Matthew 23, 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a simple proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. To make a proselyte is to make a follower. They would go to great lengths to make followers of themselves. And Jesus says, "And when you make them a follower of yourself, <laughs> you are just leading them to hell. You are causing them to actually reject me by being your followers. Even Pontius Pilate knew that the Pharisees had delivered Jesus up to be crucified out of their envy of Jesus' place, their envy of Jesus' position, that people were following Jesus rather than, than following the Pharisees. Even Pilate could see that. For it tells us in Matthew 27, 17 and 18, so when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to deliver to you? Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Christ? So he gives the Pharisees a choice. It is customary at the feast to release one, one criminal So who do you want to be released? Do you want Barabbas or Jesus? Now, he picked the most repugnant of criminals that he could find. Barabbas was a real scoundrel. Barabbas had everything going against him. So who do you want? You want this guy who is absolutely worthy of death, Barabbas to be released, or do you want Jesus to be released? But it says that he gave them that choice, verse 18, for he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. He knew it wasn't about righteousness. He knew it wasn't about holiness. He knew it wasn't about truth. Pilate understood that. And to reveal that, and to make it absolutely obvious to everyone, he said, who do you want to be set free? Barabbas or Jesus? And of course they chose Barabbas. Because they aren't interested in justice. They aren't interested in true retribution. They want Jesus off the scene because people are following Jesus rather than following themselves. But there's a very, very striking portion of scripture in the book of Acts. Paul is about to die. He is not going to be able to go to Ephesus for any more visits. And so Paul asks the Ephesian elders to come and meet him so that he can give some parting words and instruction. And his final words to the Ephesian elders are these, Acts 20:28 20, and following. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, Now here's the real sobering words. And from among your own selves. He's talking to the elders of the church at Ephesus and says to the elders of the church at Ephesus and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. They're going to take the scripture and they're going to twist it. They're going to make the scripture say something it doesn't say. Why? To draw away the disciples after them. To draw away the disciples after them. To have preeminence. Gaius does the same thing. In the John epistles, people wanting authority for themselves rather than The authority of God. The application is quite simple. We must be on guard against religious and political leaders who will trust the scriptures in order to make followers of themselves.
1: It happens all the time. People seeking followers of themselves. And unfortunately,
0: Christians are too easily duped And fail to see that these leaders are seeking to make followers of themselves. Rather than pointing people to Christ. They are pointing people to themselves. And they want followers. And the way to do that, they have to somehow depart from the truth and get people to depart from the truth along with them. The second characteristic of false worship is that it distorts the character of God by presenting God as demanding too much from his people. Now, note the way that Jeroboam sells his false worship to the people as to paint God as too demanding, 1 Kings 12-28. So the king took counsel, and he made two calves of gold, and he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. You've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. I think the NAS makes it a little more clear when it translates it this way. It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. It's too much for you to go to Jerusalem. That's a long way. That's a long way. I can't believe that God is asking you to travel all the way to Jerusalem. You don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. That's, That's too far. Now, this was actually pretty clever. For if you remember... Jeroboam had become king over Israel because the Israelites had said to Rehoboam that his father Solomon had been too demanding as king. And they said, if you just lighten up a little bit, we will be your followers. And his response was, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back and that's when the people revolted, revolted against um, Rehoboam. Now he represents God in the same light as was represented Rehoboam. God is too demanding of you. God is asking too much of you. Traveling all the way to Jerusalem, just to worship, that takes time, that takes resources.
1: That interrupts your life, your work. You don't want to do that.
0: It's interesting, this whole concept of a yoke. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30, "'Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, "'and I will give you rest.'" Take upon my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly. Then you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So often, that is not the way in which the Christian life is depicted by those who are interested in drawing away followers those who are promoting a false worship. There is a misrepresentation of the character of God. Misrepresentation of the scriptures. People say things like, the Bible's just filled with a bunch of do's and don'ts. If you're a Christian, you're never going to have any fun. Life is miserable, life is hard. God is demanding. God is this cruel judge. And so, what Jeroboam does is make false worship more convenient by establishing not just one place of worship, but two. If you look at verse 29. And he made these two calves, or bulls, and he set one in Bethel, and he put the other in Dan. And if you look on a map, they are the two ends of the the kingdom so that those would not have to travel as far. They could go to whichever was closer and whichever they preferred. He made it convenient. He made it convenient. So often, Christian worship is intended to make worship convenient. Convenient. A worship without commitment a worship without personal sacrifice. A worship that no longer requires obedience to God and his word. A worship that is catered. Nothing is required. The worshiper isn't expected to give of their time, their energies, their resources. They just come. Observe, participate, take in, celebrate, enjoy, and leave. And nothing is really required of them as far as real commitment or work or participation. It is an event that is simply enjoyed. Simply enjoyed. It's convenient. The third characteristic of false worship is that the attributes, the acts, and the goodness and provision of God are attributed to another. One of God's great acts, of course, was delivering the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. It is one of those great life-changing events and nation-changing events. It really was a defining moment for the children of Israel that they were able to be taken out of the bondage of Egypt and brought into the promised land where now they have been established and they are a part of the kingdom. This was God's great work. But notice what Jeroboam says in verse 28. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. These calves... These are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Well, of course, they did not bring the children of Israel up out of the land of Egypt. But that's who was given the credit. That's who was given the glory. Worship these calves for they brought you up out of the land of Egypt. How that ever could fly, we'll talk about later. But one must quickly go back and
1: realize that we heard something like this before. Aaron had made a golden calf. And
0: he tells us in Exodus 32, verse 4, And he received the gold from their hand, fashioned it with a graving tool, made a golden calf, and they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Attributing the acts and works of God to another is nothing new. And while false worship is seen to be novel or new or clever, there is nothing new under the sun. And the heresies that are presented today are the same heresies that were seen down through the church ages. You can just dust off, and those things have different labels, but they have the same roots,
1: even this false religion did. We must be
0: mindful of the temptations. Now, we have become much too sophisticated today to actually worship golden calves. I, I really can't see that flying too well. I, I don't think if we would you know, bring some golden calves in here that I could sell you that these are the gods who done anything for you and certainly have not died on the cross and... Accomplished your salvation. We're, we're way sophisticated, way, way. We're not going to get involved in that kind of idolatry. However, there is a much more subtle idolatry today. That is man centered worship. Man centered worship. And rather than ascribing the acts of God, To calves, they are ascribed to human leaders. They are ascribed to those that are in authority. They are given the credit, they are given the praise. So if this worship were being established today, it would focus upon Moses. And what Moses had done for the nation of Israel. And how Moses had led the children of Israel out of Egypt. And how Moses had provided for them. And interestingly enough, you get to the New Testament and the Pharisees said, Moses gave us bread to eat. Moses never gave the children of Israel bread to eat. God gave. Israel, bread to eat. He wasn't even a mediator. He didn't even speak for God so that the bread appeared. It was God and God alone. But the Pharisees were attributing it to Moses. Well, we live in a day and age in which more and more God is re- being removed from worship and being replaced by man.
1: And people are being worshipped. Leadership methods are
0: being examined and exalted. So if it were today, we'd want to look at the characteristics of Moses. What kind of Moses was, what kind of servant was he? How did he bring to pass a following? How did he gather people? What was it about his character? What was it about his personality? What was it that made him the leader that he was? And what kinds of things can we do that can incorporate Moses' leadership style. How could we make our church more like Moses' governance of the children of Israel in the land of Egypt? It becomes about people and what they do and what they have accomplished, rather than about God and what he has done and what he has Accomplished, And you will see that these things build. They build. Fourth. The fourth characteristic of false worship is that it is in fact sinful. The worship itself was sinful. Verse 30. Then this thing became a sin. This thing became a sin. We live in a, a day and age that teaches that All worship of any kind is acceptable to God. Our culture celebrates diversity. And in many circles, the the church has embraced the same kind of diversity that, that our culture practices. That is that there is a high view of diversity that celebrates the different worship styles and gods. And it is popular to have worship services that would include Christ and Buddha, that would bring Hindu and Christian together, that would offer prayers and homilies, to celebrate one people worshiping the way that they are led, the way that they believe that they should honor
1: their God. And that's viewed as wonderful. But God rejects it. But God doesn't accept that.
0: But it is not pleasing God. In fact, it brings God's rebuke. Rebu- we will look next week at God's response to this false worship. That's next week. I'm not gonna go there today. But it is rebuked, it is rejected by God. And then the irony of it all is that the people become committed to this false worship even though they had been they had failed to be committed to the worship of the true and living God, for it tells us in verse thirty then this became a sin for the people went as far as Dan to be before the one. There's a number of reasons for that, one of them is because this worship in Bethel is going to be destroyed that's next next week, but now they've
1: got this place that's all the way at the very end of the kingdom. And they're going to go all the way over there. When it
0: was too far to go to the center of the kingdom, to worship in Jerusalem, now they're going to hightail all the way over the end. The irony of ironies.
1: The irony of ironies. And Jeroboam doesn't think that's too much to ask. Fifth, the fifth characteristic of false worship is that it's
0: led by those who are not called by God. It's led by those who are not called by God. Verse 31. He also made temples on high places, and now these words, and appointed priests from among all the peoples who were not of the Levites. The Levites were God's chosen priests. They were the family that was to exercise the religious duties and functions in the nation they were the ones that were teachers of the law. They were God's
1: chosen instruments. Rehoboam, purposefully, purposefully made priests of those who were not Levites.
0: Levites would have been a problem. The Levites knew the word of God. The evites were well aware of what the scriptures said and what the scriptures demanded. And so he put people in place who would not know the scriptures and would not know the laws in the way in which the priests did. And furthermore would be exalted for they
1: now would have a place that they never had a chance of having under the true worship of God. Now people could be priests
0: who previously could not be priests. That was very appealing. That was very appealing. Now anybody could be a priest.
1: Anybody could be a leader. Anybody could be an authority. Sounded pretty good. We live in a day and age
0: in which there is a real disdain for the ordination process of people being examined as to whether or not they are truly called of God to be pastors and leaders in churches. There is a, a question that's asked of every individual that is going to be ordained in the Bible Fellowship Church and the question is this. Have you been inwardly persuaded as far as you know your own heart to seek the office of the Christian ministry in response to God's call out of love for him and a sincere desire to promote his glory in the
1: gospel of his son are you responding to God's call has God called you not have you been elected by
0: numerous people but has God called you there is a, a tremendously lack, if I can use that kind of phrase, phraseology, an appreciation for theological training. Not all megachurches, but there are quite a number of megachurches whose senior pastors, if you will, if you, if you just look at, them on the website, you will come to realize that most of them don't have theological training whatsoever. They usually have
1: MBAs, degrees in business administration. The church is viewed more and more like a business, like an organization, trying
0: to get someone who can have good financial acumen, good public relations skills, who can sell and market the gospel in such a way that that people will readily receive it and flock to the church. Not to hear the word of God, but simply to come and to give and to participate.
1: And yes, there's even an intention,
0: many times, of not preaching the word of God because that turns some people off because some people will be offended by it. So downplay the word of God and upplay what we have in common and what we enjoy.
1: The sixth characteristic of false worship is that it purposefully mimics
0: elements of the true worship. It purposefully mimics elements Of the true worship. 1 Kings 12.32. And Jeroboam appointed to Israel. On the 15th day of the 8th month. Like the feast that was in Judah. So Jeroboam appointed a feast. On the 15th day of the 8th month. Like the feast that was in Judah. Jeroboam established. A worship. That looked. Much like. Like the worship that the Israelites were used to. In Numbers chapter 29 verses 1 and 2 it says this, On the first day of the seventh month you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, it's a day for you to blow the trumpets. And you shall offer a burnt offering for a pleasing aroma to the Lord, one bull from a hand, one ram, seven male lambs, a year old without blemish. Well, 1 Kings 12.32, Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month. Not the right time. And he offered, uh, on the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did the same things. So they would feel really comfortable. They were used to this. They were used to the the sacrifices. They were used to the the bull being sacrificed. And, man, how clever is that? To to be worshiping a bull, and they're sacrificing a bull. That that makes sense, doesn't it? But it was comfortable. It was was something they were used to. Big deal. It's taking place on a different day. Now, does that really matter? Is that really important? After all... They're offering sacrifices, aren't they? They're getting together, aren't they? They're feasting, aren't they? They're doing everything except, okay, right, you're right. We're not meeting on the same day, but what's
1: the big deal? Well, they also have priests that aren't real priests. But the point is, it, it seems familiar. False worship seems Familiar. It does the same things. People gather, they pray. They sing. They take offerings. They do what people do when they worship. Except they're not hearing the truth of God's word. But it seems, seems
0: so familiar doesn't really seem very different. It's such a little thing that's different. We must guard against the worship where there are prayers, where there's scripture reading, where there's observance of communion, and all kinds of religious activities and duties but are void of the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Worship without form, excuse me, worship with form but no substance. Worship with form but no substance. That which is said about the communion, that which is said about the baptism is far different than what we would say about the communion, what we would say about the baptism. But that is easily overlooked because They're taking communion and they're having baptism. Ultimately, the object of that worship is different. The allegiance to Christ is different. So that actually it is man centered. It is common for people to think if someone goes to a church that doesn't really, really clearly hold to the Scriptures, people will say, well, at least
1: they're going somewhere. At least they're going somewhere. As though going somewhere is preferable to going nowhere.
0: Interestingly enough, God's word says it's better to go nowhere than to just go somewhere. That's Isaiah chapter 1. Your noon moons, your feast days, they are abomination unto me. I can't stand them.
1: I can't stand them. If you can't worship in spirit and truth, then don't worship because it's not worship. That's not the view of
0: our culture. That's not the view of our society. I get that but let it never become the view of our church. Lastly, the seventh characteristic of false worship. And it's really a culmination. These things build. And the seventh and final characteristic of false worship is that it's concocted by man and does not come from God. It's concocted by man and does not come from God. A few weeks ago, when we were in the section of the fact that God had established Jeroboam to be king, I emphasized the pronoun I. Do you remember that? I have given you the kingdom. I have done this. I have done that. I have done that. And the emphasis was on God. Remember that? Well, the pronoun now shifts. And notice how the emphasis is on Jeroboam and not God. 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 32. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the fifth month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel to the calves that he had made and placed in Bethel. The priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the eighth month in the morning, that he had devised from his own heart. He had devised from his own heart. He made this. He did this. This was Jeroboam's religion. None of this came from God. It was a concoction, it was out of his own mind that all of these practices sprung. It didn't come from God's word. It didn't come from God's command. What is the most basic difference between true worship and false worship? Is that true worship is based on the word of God. False worship Is based
1: on the desires, the reasonings, the concoctions of human beings. The doctrine in true worship is founded upon God. The doctrine in false worship is founded upon reason. True worship is God centered. False worship is man-centered
0: and human-centered. True worship exalts God. False worship
1: exalts the human leaders and the worshipers. It is designed to actually Take away
0: one's focus upon God and bring the focus upon the human leaders for that's how they're going to gain their following. That's how they are going to gain their prominence. That's how they are going to establish their kingdom. That's how they're going to be important. And that's how you're going to become obligated to them. And you're going to think you need them.
1: But you don't need a human leader. God is your leader. God is the head of the church.
0: Jesus is the head of the church. And all glory and honor and praise belongs to him.
1: And we never can be a follower of human beings. We're followers of God. And always be aware of that selfish desire
0: that is present within leaders to make followers of themselves rather than followers of God. And even as Paul warned the Ephesian elders. I would say even to us as leaders we need to guard our hearts that we don't want people to follow us but we want people to follow God. We're not establishing our kingdom we're establishing his kingdom. And we're pointing people not to what we
1: have done we're pointing people to what God has done. Don't be taken in by false worship. Worship the true and living God and him alone. Let's
0: pray. Almighty God, we rejoice in who you are. We rejoice in what you have done. We're thankful that Jesus Christ died on the cross. He was buried. He he rose again. These are truths. Truths that some churches don't proclaim and even don't acknowledge. Don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Don't believe that he bodily rose from the dead. Or that he's coming again. But they worship much like we do. They have hymns. They have spiritual songs. They have prayer
1: time. They take communion. They have baptism. but Not the truth of God's word. Lord, give us discernment. Give us the ability to recognize
0: leaders who are pointing people to themselves
1: rather than pointing people to Christ. And guard our hearts. Then
0: whatever role that we exercise influence,
1: that we'd be pointing people to Christ. To you. For everything else will bring into bondage. Everything else
0: will bring about destruction. But you will prosper. You will build your church. And the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Give us confidence in you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.